Die Hard PCA. Die Hard PCA. Bah, fa, the PCA is the best PCA in the A. Now everybody say, Die Hard PCA. Die Hard PCA. Jason has Jason has adopted an approach to defending his Astros that he would never advocate for his kids. Everybody else is doing it, and so you know, let's not let's not punish my team. Everybody say, I hard PCA, die hard PCA, by far the PCA is the best PCA in the A. Out there, this is Doug Servin. I'm one of the co-hosts of iHeartPCA. We're talking about what's good, beautiful, and believable in the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America. I'm calling today on a sort of strange, rainy day in Oklahoma City. It's unusual, especially as we've been talking. Justin, tell me where you're at. What's going on with you? Doug, I'm good. Chilling here in Albuquerque, and it's uh, not cold or rainy. It's sunny and hot. So we have a typical... Friday, right? Typical. So, Justin, the thing I want to talk to you about today as we get the intro in, and I don't want to delay, delay our guest too long, is I want to ask you, what is a sabbatical? A PCA pastor sabbatical is a topic connected today. So what is it? Tell me about it. Why are we talking about it today on iHeartPCA? So a sabbatical is a extended period of rest for a pastor, or sometimes you'll see it in the academic world where guys get away for one month, two months, three months. Usually it's three months or more. Sometimes it's six months. Sometimes it's a year. And uh, I start a six-month sabbatical on Wednesday. So, yeah. Yay, sabbatical. Justin, here we are recording this in July, but people are going to be listening to this later, right? You know, in September, October, November, and then of course forever. So what would you say now you're hoping to accomplish in your sabbatical as you go through it? What are you hoping for? Uh, I'm hoping I've been in ministry 25 years uh, for the most part on, you know, with a few little blips in there, been pastoring here in Albuquerque for 10 and have yet to experience sabbatical. And so I would hope I'd be uh, starting to feel rest uh, two to three months in. And, uh, you know, they talk about how you should get a sabbatical long enough that you can peel back from what you do and how your identity is kind of stuck to what you do and actually enter into rest. And sometimes that takes a couple of months just to deprogram. And you know that because you took a six, six month sabbatical in the last couple of years. Yeah. That, that's right. Uh, it, I took one several years ago and it was amazing. I'm so glad your church is doing this for you. Of course, I'm yeah. sure it's hard to do now in the midst of this and you've probably renegotiated it. So I'm not sure yeah, I was what you're thinking. Yeah, I was thinking about not doing it. I I uh, was supposed to start in April and it was supposed to go to Thanksgiving and um when COVID hit, you know, we just decided that I should wait 
And I thought I might wait till next year. And then we got into April and I was like, oh, I should be on sabbatical. And it was a lot harder than I thought it might be. And uh, I was really worn out. And so I, I started talking to my wife, Danette. And then I talked to my session and we decided that I should go ahead and do it now. The church is in a really good place. And I have some leaders that normally would have been traveling, but because of COVID, they're not. So they can do some of, um, a lot more of the preaching and just made sense for me to go ahead and, and do it. Great. Here we are talking with Jeremy Fair, our guest. Jeremy is calling in from Tulsa, Oklahoma. He is a pastor. That's right. At a church, um, Christ Prez, City Prez, Redeemer Prez. What is it? Um, I can't ever keep these straight. Right? It's uh, Christ. Christ Prez. Yeah. So uh, Jeremy's also calling to us. We're going to get to this, but he's on sabbatical. So it's amazing that Jeremy is talking to us in the midst of this time where he's supposed to be not necessarily on the clock, but he really cares about this. I mean, he's got a lot of other stuff going on, and he wants to call in and talk with us because it's important to him, it's important to us. So we're excited to hear from you, Jeremy, to hear about what's going on with your sabbatical, what a sabbatical is, and what you're doing with all your time, since we're not exactly sure what that is. So tell us what it is. Great. Thanks for having me, Doug and Justin. Um, I am on sabbatical, but I'm not entirely disengaging from all things ministry related. So it's the first time I've been in the office in about 12 days. Mine started right at the end of June, the first part of July. So it's the first time I've been in. Uh, but I've listened to every episode of I Heart PCA. In fact, I listened to Sarah's Ooh. episode this morning. Uh, that's I, I won a star for that or some sort of award. Yeah. But um, yeah, I love the podcast. I love what you guys are doing. And uh, I'm a bit humbled because of your guests. You had Jim Wirt and Alexander and these moderators and captains of ministry. And I'm just a lowly pastor of a local congregation. No, so. no, no, no. Tell me how long you've been at Christ Prez and how long you've been the PCA. Right. Uh, senior pastor at Christ Prez in Tulsa is about 90 minutes from you, Doug, and have been here. The church is 53 years old, 53, 54, um, predates the PCA, was an RP, RPC in a church, um, and I've been here eight and a half years. I'm the basically the fourth pastor over those 54 years. And who's on your staff? Anybody notable that we should know about? Uh, no, no one of note. <laughs> uh, we've got, I have, we have one associate pastor, Jason Bobo, who some of your listeners will know. He served RUF out at Arizona State, worked with um, Redeemer Seminary, formerly Westminster Dallas, was on staff there a couple different times. Uh, our our ministry lives sort of parallel one another. We're about nine months apart in age, but both come from the Baptist world, did youth ministry, and then made our way into the PCA. So yeah, he's the only other pastor we have on staff, and then we have four other 
um, administrative and ministry. So, Jeremy, what's your PCA path? You've alluded to it, but what's your PCA story so we can know about it? I grew up in a Christian home. We didn't, I didn't have the language of covenant family at the time. It was a Baptist church, but it certainly was a covenant family. Uh, my parents still are members of the church where I grew up, um, where I uh, was converted, called to faith, called to ministry, baptized, preached my first sermon. So they're still members of that little church. It's a small independent Baptist church that is classically Baptist and but landmark Baptist, landmark Baptist, uh, they, they've sort of shied away from th- that title or that language, but they are, um, but they are also Calvinistic soteriologically. So they, they call it the doctrines of grace, but they affirm the doctrines of grace. So I had that growing up, that sort of foundation and, uh, was called to ministry, Right before I, uh, or right after I graduated high school, so the summer between high school and college, and I went to Dallas Baptist University, which is where I did my undergrad because they had a, a good religion and philosophy department. And so the wheels were turning. I was I was Calvinistic in my thinking, sort of that cage stage period. And um, my three sweet mates were all members of Park City's Press. They all, at least they all attended there, and uh, some influential guys in my life at that time, we're in the PCA and it took about three or four years. So the rest of college, and then I attended Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, which is a Southern Baptist seminary. And yeah, just three or four years, I've likened it to sort of dominoes stacked on end. And, you know, the first one, which fell was Calvinism. And then I began to think about church polity, which is not a real sexy thing to think about as a college senior, but I began to wrestle with that and these other things. And eventually I got to infant baptism and my view of the sacraments. I was a youth pastor at a Baptist church at the time. And my wife and I were discussing what our post-seminary plans would be, where God would call us. And it just lined up with the PCA, what we knew about it, what we knew about the theology, um, confessional boundaries, uh, philosophy of ministry for the most part in the PCA lined up with where we, where we were, where we still are. So yeah, that's how I got into the PCA. Um, was called to serve as an assistant pastor at a church in Alabama, Gulf Coast Presbytery, which is where I was ordained. I was actually ordained as a Southern Baptist, so I transferred in, transferred my credentials. But uh, Gulf Coast Presbytery was an assistant pastor there and then an associate pastor uh, for four years. And then I pastored a church in Arlington, Texas for another four years before coming here. Um, I, you know, it's funny how much my story, yeah, it's funny how my story matches yours, Jeremy. Like I have the exact same, almost the exact same story, ordained Southern Baptist. I ended up going to meeting Bobo at Westminster Dallas, but yeah, it's crazy. Um, so now you, you've been at Christ Press for eight years and sabbatical. So tell us about that, how you kind of decided to do it, what you're going to be doing, all that good stuff. Yeah, well, just in the same way that our, our backgrounds mirror one another a lot, Justin, the process of sabbatical from the way you described it is very similar. Typically in the academic world, um, I think that's maybe where it originated, but certainly in pastoral ministry, sabbaticals have become more common. And so our session 
adopted a sabbatical policy about a year and a half ago. We had one for our ruling elders. They serve for four years, then they get a one-year sabbatical before they become active again. But our teaching elders had never had um, a sabbatical policy in place, so they adopted one. And I think it basically is every seven years, you're afforded four months of sabbatical, uh, which is at your discretion sort of when to take that along with the uh, direction of the, of the session. So we adopted it last year and I, I've never had an extended break. You know, I get vacation weeks, but with young children, I've got a, a son who's 19 and I've got a daughter who's seven and kids in between there. So we've never had extended periods because of school schedules and stuff. So this has been nice. I mean, it's only 12, 12 days into it, but it was supposed to begin in mid-May. So I, I was supposed to graduate with my D-men, uh, travel with my whole family to Florida, come back with my, for my high school son's graduation, and then go to Italy for 14 days. That's how the sabbatical was supposed to begin. And COVID changed all that. And the session uh, thought it best, and I thought it best to tap the brakes and put that on hold. But because of uh, Jason Bobo, our associate who I mentioned, he's scheduled to take one next year, next summer, and delaying it a year would have really would have really uh, hindered his sabbatical. And this this seems to work out well. So started at July first, going to go through September, and then they're giving me an extra month of vacation next year to uh, spend time with my kids. So sweet. Any special stuff you're going to be doing? Or pretty much because COVID wiped all that out. Well, I I sought the counsel. You know, you and I texted and exchanged some messages about about sabbatical stuff, and I I uh, asked a lot of guys their thoughts on it. Asked Doug about you know his sabbatical and the, the strengths and weaknesses of it, and what he would do differently and such. And some guys tell you that you need to have a lot of structure to your sabbatical that you, that'll be the most productive way, and others tell you to have very little structure and to, to focus on rest. So I took a hybrid approach. Personally, like I say, my, my oldest son just graduated from high school. So one of my goals, he's going off to college in New York uh, in the fall. That's still the plan. So to spend as much time with him as possible, to travel yeah. with him. This week, we've done a lot of stuff together, played golf, had dinner, done a lot of neat things. Um, personally, just to rest and do some reading and reflection. Hopefully when I come back in October, I'll be uh, refreshed and rejuvenated and better pastor for Christ Press. So that's the, that's the goal. And then just do some house projects, things like I'm going to extend my patio, uh, build a pergola shade thing. My father's nice. going to come up for a few days and help me with that. But there are things that you don't normally get a chance to do because you don't have an extended period of time to do them. Jeremy, this is a topic yeah, I, change. I want to ask you about your D men, what your topic is, why you did it. And then I'll ask you a follow-up question about that because I really am interested in it, the right. whole thing. Uh, the, the title of my dissertation is the motif of sonship in Paul's theology and its usefulness for discipleship in the local church, which is a mouthful and not very engaging. It's not the elevator pitch, um, but it's about, the doctrine of adoption, which is a uniquely Pauline term, he uses it five times, uh, really four distinct occasions. And 
how the doctrine of adoption uh, foundationally supports growth, growth in the process of discipleship and how it's often neglected. So you think of ministries that focus on discipleship, like Navigators, which I know you've got a history with, and uh, other parachurch ministries. They tend to go immediately to uh, the imperative. These are the practices of discipleship. But they, uh, without, outside of like World Harvest, which is now Surge and others, there aren't many ministries that focus on um, the basis for discipleship, which my contention is that it's rooted in adoption. At least, at least Paul makes that contention in three of his epistles. So that's what I did my dissertation on. Okay, so that's fairly academic and esoteric and interesting. And I want to hear you talk about that. But I know it's also personal. So why don't you tell me why this matters to you, Jeremy? Well, it is personally. Yeah, it, it is. It is boring. And it is it's my concentration was exegetical theology because I've always uh, felt that was a weakness. That's what led me to pursue doing a D-min in exegetical theology was that I wanted to grow in that area, uh, which I, I felt was a weakness. But um the, the catalyst for that is after I decided to do a D-min, and I did it through Knox Seminary in Fort Lauderdale. Another thing I, we have in common, I took a D-min class at Knox. Yeah. Uh, I, I investigated a few different seminaries and really appreciate Knox's D-min program. So I settled on that. And then a lot of guys go into a D-min knowing what they're going to research and write about. But I didn't. I was sort of open-ended. I, I thought about maybe the nature of officers in the church. I thought about the role of women in the church. Uh, but uh, around that same time, I, I'm adopted. I was adopted when I was three months old. And I, I did not know for 42 years my biological parents. It was a closed adoption through the state. And I took a DNA test, an Ancestry.com test, about a year and a half ago because it was, it was on sale on Black Friday. It was half price. So I, I spit in the tube and I sent it off. I got the results back. And if you've done one of these, you know that it tells you in very, with very broad strokes sort of your ancestral background. You know, your people come from this area, what, whatnot. And then I forgot about it. I saw the results and I didn't log in for an entire year. But a year later, this so this would have been a year and a half ago this past March, I logged in for some reason and I had a message waiting for me through their platform from a lady asking me to reach out to her. And I thought it was a scam. I thought someone had gotten their database and was trying to scam me. But it wasn't a scam. It was my biological mother uh, who lives just a few miles from me here in Tulsa. She uh, was 17 when she had me. She um, had also done that test. And when she got the results back, it was, you know, it's 99.9% uh, probability of a, of a parent-child relationship based on the DNA. So she reached out to me and we messaged for a few weeks and then we had breakfast. And then we've kind of been catching up for 40 something years over the last year and couple of months. In fact, I'm supposed to go over to her house this afternoon. Um, but she's met my parents. They've met her. She's gone to our kids' play performances. Uh, 
my my grand or my my daughter thinks calls her her third grandmother now. So that's been cool. So that being adopted and that relationship uh, being rekindled or formed in the process of when I was deciding what to write about and research became the catalyst uh, for the doctrine of adoption. So it was more, it's more personal to me than just theological or theoretical. Amazing. That is an incredible story, dude. Wow. Love it. Thanks for sharing it. I'm so th- grateful to hear from you, Jeremy, about these topics. They're so important. They're theological and also personal. And they matter to our doctrine and life in the church. And so we're thankful to hear you talk about them. So we're going to take a break here at iHeartPCA. This is a good chance to like our podcast and then also anticipate what we're going to talk about. We're going to hear from Jeremy about more doctrinal issues. He's going to then move into other issues. This is like super in-depth interviewing, right? Of what it's like to be at the Katusa Blue Whale. So that's one of the topics we're going to get to. But so like we're at the break. Hang out. Make sure you like our our heart PCA. We'll be back in a few moments. Here we go. Stay tuned. Blackbird Books. Listeners should go to Amazon and order a copy of Christ in the Time of Corona, put together by General Editor Joshua Burdett. This book explores what a life of faith, hope, and love looks like for some of the people living in a global pandemic. Written by Christians under social distancing orders, these stories and essays offer a snapshot of how work, relationships, and worship were altered overnight and what broken, trying to be faithful, often failing Jesus-following people did and thought during this time. The author's proceeds are all going to World Central Kitchen to help cook meals for people all over the world. Every book purchase feeds a hungry person in need. Grab a copy of Christ in the time of Corona and leave a five-star review. iHeartPCA is also brought to you by Peaceful Protests. Welcome back from the break. We're going to... Oh, hey, wait, do we have a Zoom bomber? It, it, it looks like, is, is it Jason Bobo? Jason Bobo, we were talking about you, and lo and behold, here you show up on our call. So are you calling in on purpose? Are you supposed to be here? What's up? Why are we seeing you? Took an email earlier this week uh, notifying me that one of my current uh, 
ministerial comrades was uh, going to be on your show. And uh, one of the hosts asked that I call in and intercept the, the pass and run it back for a touchdown. I have no doubt you'll be able to do that, Jason. Thank you for calling in and joining us. Uh, I don't know if you know this. I'm assuming you do, but Jeremy is on sabbatical. He's been on sabbatical. He told us 12 days thus far. And so. Has it been that long already? It's, it's flying by already. I want to hear your Genesis story, how you got in the PCA. Tell us that. We're asking everyone, and then your plans for the PCA at large, but really probably more specifically your plans for Christ Prez during this sabbatical for Jeremy and what you want to do and what you want to see happen, uh, what you're going to preach on, those type of things. I came into the PCA uh, because I went to Westminster uh, Seminary in Dallas, with uh, Justin Edgar. I think we were either right at the same time or I might have been a, a semester ahead, something like that. Yeah, that's right. But I had some other uh, really good friends there uh, Ben Wheeler, uh, Bill Burns, uh, Joel St. Clair, uh, Russ Whitfield. Um, these were guys that were in the PCA while I was still trying to figure out my place where I fit. And I think it was healthy relationships and healthy ministerial outlooks from those guys that I found most compelling. Um, so that's kind of how I came in. We, the whole, nearly the whole of my seminary time, we were members at New St. Peter's. Um, and so we had a lot of uh, good PCA connections already that made it an easy transition. My plans for the PCA are to follow uh, people that are not morons into a, a healthy future. Good luck with the non-moron following part of the plan. I like it. Tell me what your ideas are for the sermon series that you are, we are doing. We're preaching through a, a, a prophet a week, so a book of the prophets a week. This past week we did Amos, um, and to since you can't really go uh, in-depth or cover as much as you might hope to, um, the Monday before I put together uh, an outline, an overview, and some guiding questions. And then all along, I'm building out a, a glossary of defined terms that will help people work with it um, the same way. And so the encouragement is for them to read the book once or twice before Sunday. And so that on Sunday, when we, whatever passage we pick to dig into, we don't lose uh, too much going on there. Um, this coming Sunday, because there's both small, we're doing Obadiah and Jonah together um, and really thinking about how do we address and deal with enemies? Do we ignore them and run away like Jonah because we don't love them? Or do we call down hellfire and judgment like Obadiah? Or maybe there's a, maybe there's a better way like Jesus. Maybe. Probably maybe. not. Yeah. <laughs> The others are more fun. <clears throat> so, uh, Jason, um, one of the things about, you know, we were talking about shared stories with Jeremy and like we were both uh, Baptist when we first came to uh, Westminster. I was going to a Baptistic Acts 29 church. In Lubbock, right? You were going to a Reformed. But no, well, no, in Lubbock, I was actually at a PCSA oh, okay. church. But the church that I attended when I first came to Dallas was in Plano. 
Um, and then you were attending a church not far from there. Up in Garland. Arm Baptist Church. Yeah. 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 It's kind of crazy, right? Here we it are. Is. It is. Presbyterians. I think Jeremy has the similar story. Um, yeah, so. we were talking about dominoes. So what Jeremy was talking about, how the dominoes kind of fell into place. What were the dominoes for you? Um, that kind Well, of I think like most Baptists, it was the the issue of covenant baptism versus believers baptism. And it just took, I think I, I had to get a lot of pieces, other pieces in place for that to, to make sense in my very literalistic, um, atomistic view of how to interpret and make sense of scripture. And I think um, Ferguson and um, Elliot Green and uh, Doug Green and a lot of those guys just helped put that. Adrian Smith and Doug Gropp, of course, those guys are amazing. But they gave me these other pieces that I didn't realize were going to knock that baptism one over. And I'm so glad. I'm so glad that I'm not who I was then. And I'm sure 20 years from now, I could say the same thing about the Jason now. So we'll see. So then on that theme, Jason and Jeremy, let's bring you back in to start answering questions again since you're a, a big part of this episode as well of course glad to have you my question is then both living in Tulsa and I live in Oklahoma what is your perspective on the Tulsa Tulsa race massacre we used to call it the Tulsa race riots here we are in 2020 and beyond I want to hear your thoughts as being a pastor in the city learning about these things and how that's changing our stories or affects our stories. Yeah, it may be different for Jason. Uh, having grown up in the Houston area, I'm sure in middle school or early high school, he took Texas history or something like that. Uh, taking Oklahoma history, this is a significant, I mean, it's, it's part of our national narrative, uh, but it, I mean, it's the only time that bombs have been dropped on domestic soil on our own citizens but it's certainly part of our state history. And I was never taught this. I mean, mm. I, I didn't grow up here. In, I was born here in Tulsa, but I grew up a few hours from here in the southwestern part of Oklahoma. Never heard about it until I was interviewing for the position here at the church. And a group of our members had moved into North Tulsa, which was the historically black part of town. It's where Black Wall Street was the Greenwood area where it still is, but they had moved into that area uh, seeking to do like you're doing in Oklahoma city, Doug with restore OKC and some ministries there trying to uh, be uh, among, be, be the hands and feet of Christ in a different part of, you know, part of the town, part of the community. So they knew about it and they, informed me of it, the Tulsa race massacre that happened uh, 1920. So coming up on the hundredth year anniversary. And, and since then I have read a lot about it, learned a lot more about it. Uh, it's become more, I think there's two movies being made right now about it. I don't remember who I think. Two documentaries. Um, yeah. One is by Russell Westbrook, who was up a couple weeks ago in town. And the other is by, LeBron James. I think they're both documentaries, but I hope one of them, like, I hope they don't come out with two documentaries about the same thing at the same time. A movie would be really 
uh, compelling, and I could see those being creating some momentum. I didn't. I didn't know about this until watching Watchmen. Yeah, like I, a lot of people. I just saw Watchmen, and I was like, and then I realized, like, oh yeah, and uh, then I heard a ton about it. You know, so part of it's probably me not paying attention, but part of it is obviously it just wasn't being talked about or taught for sure. There was a state resolution here recently, Doug. You remember, may remember the the number and the details of it about it now being taught as part of the curriculum of Oklahoma history, but they had to actually, you know, pass legislation to include that uh, so that it would be part of the uniform curriculum. But it's, I feel like, and Doug, you're in OKC, this is a little more Tulsa centric, but you've been here in the state, you know, a couple decades at least. Here on the reservation of Tulsa. Yeah. I feel I feel like the Tulsa race massacre is gaining more momentum every year, especially as we approach the hundredth anniversary. But it was it was something that people were beginning to talk about and explore. And uh, you know, eight years ago when I interviewed here, eight and a half years ago. But in that eight and a half years, it's become much more of a national story. It has, and I'm not trying to preach your sermon now. Jason, but it, it connects into how things are not okay. That's very obvious, but Jesus heals us and makes us better. Uh, yes, and the, the prophets uh, obviously speak to societal wrongs and social injustice, and you know as well as I do in um, our conservative Presbyterian context, when you start to bring some of those things up, there's likely the allegation from some members that you're uh, abandoning the historic gospel and adopting um, the, the liberal, uh, air quote, social gospel. And so the, the privilege, the opportunity before us uh, at Christ present going through these books in 13 weeks is to hear the collective voice of, of God's persecuted prophets as they went again and again to his people and said, Look, you are treating the, the marginalized, the poor, the weak, the needy. You're treating them in a way that dishonors me. And so I'm going to ignore your worship and your feasts until you do that right. And so how, do, how, how will I navigate that um, in a way that's both prophetic and pastoral? I think it remains to be seen. I had really good feedback this last week, um, but there were only uh, half of our people there because it was a national holiday. So maybe I didn't get the opportunity to piss enough people off yet. We'll see. I hope that's not what happens, right? I hope we all feel convicted by the Holy Spirit and confess and repent and change some things and make new friends and advocate for the right things. Um, but, you know, people will, if this Corona time has taught us anything it's that uh, we are very emotional beings not not always logical beings far more often we're emotional and people react in really unhealthy ways so uh, just to kind of lighten it a bit after off of that is that uh you're wearing that asterisk hat to our True. podcast i did this for you i did it for and, you and uh you know we uh emotionally are you know you're you're like emotionally devastated me as we speak with that hat you know well it was either this one for you or a rockets one for doug but since doug set the call up i had to defend you 
Thanks. Thanks, Jason. I could so do a UT one for Jeremy, but it's hard to brag about UT right now. <clears throat> Jason, I know that Justin's itching to ask you to make a defense for the Houston Astros and their World Series victory. That's, I think, what he's getting at with your hat. So why don't you offer it up? Let's hear it. Jason has, Jason has adopted an approach to defending his Astros that he would never advocate for his kids. Everybody else is doing it. And so, you know, let's not, let's not punish my team. I did not. I have never said that. I said that I was sad we lost our coach, but I understood him having to be let go. But I think that they were right to discipline the Astros, but it's only fair that that discipline extends to the other teams who were caught participating in it. I don't disagree. I don't disagree with that. I don't disagree with that. Justin, to your question a moment ago about the World Series, uh, I know that we both share a love for the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, that's, that's my NFL team. I don't know what your baseball team of record is. I'm He's a Dodgers, a Dodgers fan. fan. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> most of my sports teams are Dallas-centric because growing up in the southwestern part of Oklahoma, they were the nearest pro franchises. For I was sure. a Ma- Mavericks fan. Um, Texas Rangers fan. And I'm actually encouraged that it's only going to be a 60 game season, which is a third of a normal season because we, we play pretty good for the first third of the season. And then (laughs) we usually drop off after that. So I actually have hope that we can, uh, we can have a good outcome. Yeah, that's true about the Rangers, man. No doubt about it. I bet bet there's a lot more eyeballs on every game for that very reason, Jeremy, because every game will carry, basically a two weeks worth of emphasis. Jeremy, who's your college football team though? I'm sooner born and sooner bred. And when I die, I'll be sooner dead. Mm. Crimson and cream. You know, when you grow up in, I don't, Jason, I've talked about this, him growing up in Texas. When you grow up in Oklahoma, for the most part, you either are OU, a sooner fan or Oklahoma state, a cowboy fan. Uh, Maybe just a, very few outliers beyond that. And our family was a Sooner family. So we grew up going to the games and, and that's where I had planned to go to school my entire life until I was called into ministry. <laughs> if, if OU, Doug, if OU plays Mizzou, who do you root for? Really? Okay. What? That is not okay, man. Like if anybody plays, and I went to New Mexico State, who is not good at a lot of sports, but if anybody plays in MSU, including Texas Tech, who's kind of my adopted school, I'm cheering for NMSU, bro. Like how do you not right. cheer for your, your school? You're an alum. They went to the SEC. That's- and I love you for that. I love you for your disdain of them. I gave up on Texas A&M and went to UT when they went to SEC. You need to be careful, Doug. Go ahead. You need to be careful because you're trying to generate listenership to this podcast. If you if you you haven't noticed, the PCA is southeastern centric, so we got to be careful about bashing on the SEC. I know it's counterintuitive, and I'm not sure it's going to work, but we should move on. So let's do that. Jeremy and Jason, you both wrote chapters in a book called Christ in the Time of Corona. I tend to want to say coronavirus, but Christ in the Time of Corona. And you wrote a chapter about eating, barbecue, 
And you wrote a chapter about drinking margaritas. To the glory of God. Yes, for the glory of God. So why don't you just tell me about your chapter, why you wrote it, what you were thinking. Jeremy, you go first. You each have about 30 seconds. So let's hear about margaritas and about the blue whale of Catusa. <laughs> yeah. So I was on a Zoom call with a group of pastors just a few weeks into Corona. <clears throat> And it was a happy hour call, and the prerequisite was that everyone brings some sort of drink to the Zoom meeting. And I, I made a nice handcrafted margarita, and I put on my tropical shirt, and I sat on my porch for this Zoom call. And I caught all kinds of grief. Most of the guys had a beer or something, and that I was drinking this margarita. There's, and, and so my chapter is about the margarita both historically, but even as we think about it now, it's a celebratory drink. You know, you go out and you, you have it with a meal with friends. Uh, it, it transports you to sandy beaches and uh, tropical paradise. Uh, at least the thought of it does. And how in the time of Corona, when we're lamenting uh, and we're not able because of social distance to be close to one another, uh, can we still enjoy what the margarita embodies, what it represents. And I contend that we can, that the, the act of creating something with, with carefully selected ingredients is, uh, is a product of being made in the image of God. And then, you know, celebrating, even, even if we have to do that at a distance, we can long for that summer. We can long for that paradise, that tropical escape, uh, sort of eschatologically. So that's, that's what my short chapter is about. And the blue whale, is I think like the number 10 thing to see in Oklahoma. And it shouldn't be that it's this, <laughs> it's this metal whale off of route 66 Northeast of Tulsa. And you came up with your daughter, Doug, Anna, and for, cause I guess you're taking day trips or were at the time. So me and my family met you up there and I brought the ingredients in a chest and we made margaritas there in the park and looked at a big 80-foot metal whale. It was amazing and delicious. Jason, tell us about your chapter. My chapter is about throwing parties, social distance parties in the the neighborhood and barbecuing and feeding people, Um, even if we have to sit in our driveways and in the street with music playing just to uh, have some semblance of uh, normalcy and, and joy and fun in our lives. I've always um, enjoyed uh, cooking. Uh, built my own smoker uh, 10 years ago or so and uh, have gotten pretty good at it. Jeremy will tell you that my I think he likes my pulled pork the best but I um, use that joy that I have for doing that to feed others and this is uh, my chapter. I don't know if it'll win the Pulitzer. I think I heard it's in the, the running. Uh, we'll see how that comes out but it's fun. It's a good time. Guys, it's been so good to have you on. Really appreciate the conversation, what we've talked about. It's been really good, right, Justin? Did you like it? I do agree. It's been a great conversation. So thanks for being able to talk about all these things. We've talked about the prophetic voice. We've talked about biblical justice. We've hit some sports. Um, some of us razzed each other. And that's all good stuff. I really appreciate being able to do ministry together. We're 90 miles apart, but in the same presbytery. We started a new presbytery. 
um, you guys and your writing, but also the friendship that you have with us and, and really with each other. It's a beautiful thing to watch and to be a part of and to get to experience. So I'm, I'm really thankful for that. Praying for you to get rest, Jeremy, on your sabbatical and, and Jason as you minister. So this is iHeartPCA, our podcast. I don't think it's really terrible, is it? Is that, is that your tagline if you run for office? Doug Servin. I don't think he's terrible. I do always think the first step is to be non-terrible. So that is a goal. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for listening. Share it. Tell everyone about it. Guys, we'll catch you soon. Right? Bye, guys. Bye, Justin. Bye, Jason. Enjoy that stuff.